Art and science have had a mostly close, if sometimes uneasy, relationship throughout history. In this IFE Grand Challenge Lecture podcast, we hear from Professor Graham Baker, who discusses the value of an arts-science nexus. Professor Baker is the President of the Queensland Academy of Arts and Sciences, and his lecture was delivered on Friday 27th of October 2017 at QUT's Gardens Point campus. Remember, you can stay in touch with IFE podcasts by subscribing to our iTunes channel. You can also follow us on the web at www.qut.edu.au slash IFE, on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT, and now on Instagram at IFE.QUT. Please enjoy this podcast. Uh, this is an interesting topic in Institute for Future Environments, but might suggest that some in this institute see there is some value more than uh, currently is acknowledged in our world of research and innovation, and, and that's partly what we'd like to talk about today. Essentially, I'm here to give something of a thought piece. I wouldn't like to pretend I have all the answers, but I'd like to stimulate some thinking about where arts and sciences can certainly collaborate very productively, and what value we as a society uh, might extract from that collaboration. Now just to set the scene, I might say a little bit very briefly about the Queensland Academy of Arts and Sciences and the three of my colleagues on the Council Academy are here this afternoon with us. Uh, the Academy was formed, we're a young Academy, formed in the uh, uh, year 2000 to essentially stimulate and foster scholarship across the full spectrum of disciplines that we have in our society not merely focusing on one or two. And as a result, we're always very keen to look for the uh, value and the importance and the benefits that derive from connections between different disciplines, and today specifically, arts and sciences, which sounds like a very broad leap. Uh, we're interested in the fusion between the two, but we're also interested, of course, in the uh, value and the great things that are done in each of those areas in themselves. Now just to present some kind of background, I'm certain every university person here would probably think this way as well, but the Academy is very keen to promote a public dialogue. Well, at least a public dialogue, shall I say, of people who are interested and experts in the field to ask what are the big questions that face our country over the next X years. Sounds horribly like strategic planning 101, but we aren't looking at this as an institution or an organisation with preset ideas. And I'm certain I'm not here today to promote any particular area. Uh, and if you go through a process like that, I'm certain you'd come up with some fairly major ideas, and I might say, which would you choose? Now, it doesn't matter, as I say. We're not really here to say which of these we think is more important than any other. But we'd certainly like to promote a discussion that came up with answers like that, that had a very broad-ranging appeal across uh, innovators, uh, researchers and the broad public. I think that latter is very important and it's certainly an issue that we in the Academy take seriously. We're keen always to disseminate the great things that you all do out to the broad public as soon as possible. I only raise that as some kind of landscape on which to say, well, how does an art science nexus fit in a grand challenge that might face our country or globally, if you wish? And the first, as I've just been saying, I think, is to actually determine our societal values uh, and then what we think is important to us and uh, therefore, very importantly, what we're prepared to pay for to pursue. And out of that, I think you can reasonably, if not uh, 
explicitly argue for equity, not necessarily equal, but equity of funding across whatever disciplines are necessary to drive answers to those grand challenges. In our case, we're interested to see in the background what can an art science contribution make to the future uh, prosperity of all of our societies. And then those uh, that would come forward, of course, to face uh, the grand challenges in Australia. And before I proceed, I put that uh, slide, John Constable, of course, not me, uh, just to uh, acknowledge that I have lots of colourful pictures all taken freely off the web, so I give a blanket acknowledgement to all those public available slides, apart from specific ones that I acknowledge and uh, cite specifically. Well, what do we want to talk about, or what do I want to talk about this afternoon? It are these few things here. In an effort to discuss an art-science nexus, a connection between the two, implicitly that's beneficial, uh, I'd like to range over the kind of questions I've got there. Uh, what's the relationship currently between art and science? And I'd probably focus, just to be deliberately uh, extending, uh, creative arts through to hard uh, physical sciences, for example. That's kind of the spread I'd like deliberately to maintain. Ask the question, are they really parallel threads or do they in some way uh, intertwine and are they interwoven? How do we actually see them? Most people see these things as radically different. And yes, the practice of art, creative art, the practice of music, the practice of uh, physics, chemistry, etc., the practice is different and the mechanisms and the disciplines are different, but are the motivations and the end products all that different, I suppose, is the question. At what level, then, we would ask, do we see of a collaboration between artists and scientists here in Brisbane, in Australia, and on the international stage? And then we might go back and say, well, let's look at some specific cases and ask, how has art uh, advanced, inspired, and even driven science? The same question applies the other way around, of course. Uh, I tend to focus a little bit more this way around for reasons that I think would become clear. And finally ask, what I would say is the big question, it's very nice to inspire and to address these issues, but how might we uh, build a, a model that gives systemic, ongoing benefits? And as I've said, we consider mainly the importance of art in science, but the question, uh, and we do address it the other way around, but that question is equally valid. I'm going to start, and some people here will have seen uh, these slides. I gave a brief introduction to an artist in residence program at the Ecosciences Precinct recently. <laughs> Where did the maths come from? This is a personal, a personal perspective, just to start and sow the seeds. Uh, and these are photographs of the wonderful artworks inside the Dome of the Duomo in Florence, and the outside views there, blown up the scale. The, it's a little fuzzy, I apologise. And you might say, well, what relevance does that have in today's talk? Uh, I'm an engineering scientist. I love that numbery stuff in the middle there. For me, uh, you could say that in, in our cultures, uh, as various as they are, but in the cultures in uh, Europe in the Renaissance period and, and earlier than that, of course, people were very keen to depict religious and other uh, significant images, and uh, they did it with the best artists available, and those things were regarded really highly. Well, then you start saying, where do you put these? And they put them in domes of wonderful cathedrals and churches. But then I zoom forward and stretch the bow a little far, you might say, and point out that for the, certainly the people like me in the audience would know, analysing those things is mind-numbingly difficult. Even though they've been standing for hundreds of years, if you wanted to build one today, 
it requires some extraordinary level of mathematics and engineering science and some very clever people have been, spent entire careers working out what's called shell theory and that relates even another stage further on to the branch of mathematics called differential geometry. Now I wouldn't pretend to argue that those artworks drove differential geometry but there is in a sense a familiar link between both ends of that spectrum in some way or other in the human condition that we're talking about this afternoon. If I try to summarize and forgive me if uh, you're an artist or a scientist and I say it wrong or offend you but you might simplistically say art is driven by the desire to express and science driven by the desire to discover. Uh, but then I would say, are those things all that different? In fact, if I twisted those two threads, as my rather crude DNA uh, drawing down the bottom would suggest, would you mind if I said science is driven by the desire to express and art was driven by the desire to discover? And probably you wouldn't. And I'm sure you could cite examples in any discipline where we as human beings want all of those things and we do it by different vehicles. It's interesting to me, my even more web drawing of DNA, not a really lovely one that Professor Andrews would give us, but um, a, a DNA drawing. There are already, in my view, a number of actual professions, never mind research or, 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 uh, research or disciplinary links, but professions that in some sense link arts and sciences uh, in many ways. And this is not exhaustive, uh, but in my view, uh, archaeology, you can see, which works on cultural and artistic uh, components from yesteryear in working out a whole range of scientific principles. Architecture, my colleague Dr. Bamford is here, as you might argue, is where art and science meet. Industrial design, music therapy, mathematics, natural history, and with my colleague Professor Slaughter, psychology, I even cite. Because I'd say if you're asking about the human desire to express and discover, where would you put psychology? Which camp would you put it in? And I suspect we could debate that all afternoon if you felt it worthy. Let me just go through a few of these things. And what essentially I'm talking about now is looking back over these links between arts and sciences and asking a little bit more about the relationship between, and I stress again that I'm focusing mostly on creative arts, though we can certainly add if you put humanities in with arts in your mindset, we can put literature in many ways, but creative arts in the main. Music therapy, which once would not have existed, is now a really primary therapeutic tool. And this, again, is simply an artwork of many years ago depicting the value of music and its effect on emotions. Uh, but many of you would know that there are very strong links, and uh, Dr. Elsa Shepherd, who is a QUT adjunct professor, spoke in the theatre above us last year on the behalf of the Academy, a talk called Music, Maths and the Brain, pointing out a little bit about each of those things, the music and the maths, and also how it's believed that these things actually change brain chemistry and plasticity. I'll say no more because I don't know how much more there is to say. And there are a whole range of, uh, um, if you like, outcomes from these processes that, again, uh, folks in this room would know, and a very recent study published in Campus Review between UTS and City and a, and a Dutch university. That might sound like a fairly simple thing to say, but it has a rigorous scientific basis to it. Let's skip through very quickly. Uh, back in the uh, uh, 17th, 18th centuries, 19th centuries, I think you'd argue that natural sciences were built 
on creative arts. In fact, in the days of Joseph Banks and others, uh, natural historians, their experimental method was art. They sketched, they drew, they recorded, etc., etc., and used those recordings, in fact, to pursue further scientific analysis at a later date. Whoops, sorry. And a whole range of those. Uh, uh, again, the mathematicians will recognise Fibonacci sequences, uh, which have uh, a great deal of applications in, or well, applications, relevance, perhaps is a better word, in art and in nature. And for those who are not familiar, it's a very simple sequence that occurs many times. You start with one and two, add those, you get three. Two and three, you get five. Three and five, you get eight. It's simply adding two integers, the previous one to the next one. And it grows a sequence which grows a spiral-like representation. How relevant is that? I don't really know. But there is a really great connection that's uh, been with us since the 1500s or earlier. Uh, the Dutch... Uh, graphic artist M.C. Escher, uh, who's no doubt challenged topologists and psychologists in human perception alike with his uh, amazing uh, graphic works. This is just relationships, nothing more. I'm not, not trying to suggest any great significant outcome at this stage, just talking about connections that have existed over a period of time. I end up with Leonardo da Vinci, and yes, I know he was a genius, uh, but nonetheless... Uh, his works ranged from uh, purely fine arts through to essentially engineering and architecture. And you, in the, on the right-hand side, depiction, of course, underlying that mathematics and physics. And uh, in my view, in his world, they were all the same. In his time, in his world, there were not separations of arts and scientists. There were not divisions. There was just exploration. And I don't know how you'd like to categorise any of those three, whether you'd like to call them art or science, because they're clearly blends of each. Well, that's just a little bit of background, if you like, uh, uh, that talks a bit about the relationship that's existed between arts and sciences over a period of uh, many hundreds of years. Let's say a little bit about collaborations between arts and sciences as we see them today, and they'll come back to some more specific beneficial cases of art and science together. Well, uh, I've just said this first statement already, in a sense. Uh, in the modern era, there's such a vast body of knowledge that we've succumbed uh, to the, the will to subdivide disciplines into smaller and narrower and micro-elements. And then, in a sense, sometimes we get some of these and re-stitch them back together in different formats. And scientists would certainly, or physicists would recognise the subdivision of physics in a whole range of areas that then gets reconnected with materials or other areas and comes back in a, another format. So in the re-stitching, uh, what's going on? Well, uh, here in Brisbane, we have a, a program run through the science, the Department of Science and Innovation uh, over in the Ecosciences Precinct called Artists in Science Residence, or Artists in Residence Science, they also call it, where they put artists in a scientific establishment, your universities, botanic gardens, etc., and folks work together uh, uh, quite consciously. The Art of Neuroscience, the Royal Dutch Academy, offers a competition for you artists to get out there and do things in neurosciences. The American Academy of Arts has a whole range of programs in this area. And these are all, if you like, the scholarly uh, end of the spectrum. Uh, 
the Academy itself ran uh, last year, or perhaps the year before, a very interesting talk by Professor Andrew McNamara from QUT, I saw it in the back there, and Professor John Drennan uh, from the University of Queensland on the science of Van Gogh paintings, where the two folks uh, inextricably are linked in understanding uh, what went on in Van Gogh and how the paint in those paintings are going to survive or not survive. And Elsa Shepherd, I've already mentioned. Who in the world is doing things in this space and uh, who is finding the art science nexus significant? Well, uh, started by a group at the University of California in Los Angeles, and I'm only going to pick on one or two examples for you. Uh, there's a very large uh, Nexus collaborative group well underway. It has been for many years now, or some years. They now have nearly 8,000 members on their LinkedIn connection where artists and scientists are actively collaborating. Uh, they've developed an academy of nano art, and of course, like everyone else in the world, they have a Facebook page. But nonetheless, these, of course, in our modern times are the way to communicate ideas, and the benefit of what we're trying to talk about today is communicating new ideas across domains in order to spark innovation, advances, etc. The last one's not UCLA, but I just thought this was very interesting. You don't get organisations more hardcore physics than CERN in Lausanne in Switzerland. Uh, nuclear science, splitting atoms and the like. And they advertised in the Times Higher Education Supplement just a few weeks ago a job called Head of Arts. And I, I admit, some of the arts were promotional materials uh, etc. But a lot of it was about visualisation of science uh, processes and experiments. But I extracted these words because I think they're very significant. That part of the person's job is to promote dialogue and co-creation between artists and scientists in the middle of the Hadron Collider, so to speak. So there are some serious groups working in this space. And I'll mention another one in a moment or two. Uh, let me just go back uh, briefly, and start to say a little bit more then, well, how, how do we actually put some <clears throat> real cases on the table to consider how arts and sciences have actually benefited each other? And I think it would be fair to say that in terms of degrees of value or degrees of influence, you might start with uh, when one advances the other, gives it a nudge, a helpful push in the right direction. When art or science, I, I'm deliberately trying to reflect that the questions go both ways, when might art have inspired science and when has it actually unlocked science? Where are there cases where art has done something that sets scientists on a track that they otherwise would not have considered? And, as I keep saying, vice versa. And it's an important point to make, I think, that the relationship doesn't always have to be cosy uh, sometimes disruption, as we all say now in our IT world, disruptive concepts are themselves as important in driving new ideas as a warm, friendly cup of tea. Uh, and it's often the case. And some of the great value we could probably argue in an arts-sciences nexus is whilst, as I've said, we all have our own disciplines, techniques, uh, processes, etc. If we conceptualise things differently, and especially if it's radically differently, does that in itself give rise to ideas that we otherwise may not have considered? So I'm going back in history again. Uh, and this is something of a set of examples that I happen to choose, and if you know of other and better ones, that's terrific, and you could certainly 
point those out to us later on. Uh, art historian and professor at Harvard, Susan Dackerman, uh, not long ago uh, wrote an expose about one particular artist, a German chap named Olbrecht Dürer, who you see uh, lived just either side of the year 1500. And it's important to say he was an artist, not a scientist who happened to be an artist, but an artist. This subject is not about those cliched examples like Einstein played the violin. It's about where the real meat is. And some of the examples that uh, uh, Susan Dackerman raised, uh, probably the best known one is his wood carving of rhinoceros. Why is that significant? Well, back in uh, 1503, when he travelled the world sketching, drawing, doing wood carvings, his images informed European scientists, they reckon, for about 250 years. So it's what he saw informed what the scientists did, understood and, and pursued. There's another one here that I think is absolutely wonderful, uh, if I don't destroy your... This one here. A much less celebrated image of Dürer's, which you can see is really essentially, you might argue, an artist uh, telling someone how you can sketch uh, a subject, in this case a model, by looking through a grid-like pattern and then reproducing on another grid-like pattern. Well, the artist here would tell me that's drawing 101, probably. The important thing that's perhaps less obvious, this essentially is the beginning of optics. And Newton's famous treatise on the subject, spelt with the K, by the way, I got it right, wasn't published for 200 years after this drawing of Dürer. Now, I'm not trying to say that uh, he was smarter than Newton or thought of it before Newton. The point is, a long way ago, there were people like this giving science a nudge in the right direction. They didn't pursue it themselves. They didn't do any further. But they certainly uh, made statements that needed to be listened to. This last one here, and I, I uh, hasten to add, I don't wish to tread on any toes here, but this is a quite an important uh, drawing as well. Uh, you would all be aware, of course, that back in the uh, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, uh, drawings or, or artworks of the stars were considered very religious depictions, uh, Christian religious depictions of, in this case, of uh, celestial bodies. And they were always drawn uh, in the corners or certainly around the drawings with, uh, if you like, mythical figures like Venus, etc., Dürer redrew one, and it doesn't matter their names, but the four people in the corners were well-known astronomers of the day, real people doing astronomy. And in that, he made a statement, a hundred years before Galileo was effectively nearly hung, drawn and quartered, effectively saying that in his view, cosmology was a scientific discipline, not a religious one. That's a very brave thing to say, and I don't wish to get into a debate about whether that's right or wrong. We all have our own views. But it goes to show that there are examples, certainly of people a long time ago, who were pushing science along, whether that was a conscious effort or otherwise. Modern day. Um, we might ask uh, today whether we see uh, examples of art-inspired science or science-inspired art. And I can just tell you about a few of these very quickly. Uh, this was a funding scheme by the the UK ARC, Engineering, Physical, Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, I wish to stress, uh, where there were grants for artists. You might think it's merely a visualisation tool, though of course the uh, computer science people here will all tell us that visualisation is no mean feat. 
and it's actually a very important discipline, subject in its own right. This one's actually a depiction, it's hard to see, of flight paths of bees. And it was designed not just to show people what it looked like in a science centre kind of way, but to be able to analyse, model and do the mathematics, etc., of bee uh, flight paths and flying mechanisms, etc. This one here, I do wish to acknowledge Brisbane artist Donna Davis, who I don't think is here today. Uh, Donna's a, a wonderful artist here who uh, has an exhibition at the moment called Unseen at the Logan Art Gallery. Go and see it. It's fantastic. Absolutely wonderful stuff. And the important thing here is that Donna's also working with the herbarium at the Botanic Gardens in Mount Cutha, uh, where she was very interested in the notion of uh, fungi. Why? Why? Most of us like putting mushrooms on our eggs, but why are you interested in fungi? If you didn't know, fungi are actually a neural network, you might argue, are certainly a network of subterranean connectivity, and the mushroom pops up arbitrarily in different places. And what Donna has been doing is going out and collecting her own scientific data, and in fact doing it somewhat differently from the uh, scientists uh, who are employed and stationed in the herbarium, not to say they've been doing it wrong, but giving them some new ideas about how you might go about this in a fairly rigorous manner. This is one of her artworks which is really just depicting what I just said, the network of tendrils subterranean with fungi emerging. That's her picture, but the interconnection between her and the scientists is really quite interesting. Again, Donna is an artist. She wouldn't pretend in any way to be a scientist. And this last one is very interesting. I might leave it for you to decide whether that's a piece of art or a piece of science, and we can come back to that another time. What is that a picture of? We'll see. Uh, another example, and, and mine are consciously a list of cases and examples. Uh, I think that's uh, as much as we'll want to do today. Uh, this is a former colleague of mine, Bryce Barker, another academy fellow at, uh, up in Toowoomba who's an archaeologist. I saw some nods when I mentioned archaeology earlier. And Bryce has been working with uh, Indigenous colleagues in the Northern Territory. And this particular site is a very, very old rock shelter or rock cave, a natural formation. The artwork on th this rock shelter is a small fragment, not destroyed, it was on the ground. A lot of the artwork was done with charcoal and therefore, as uh, Ian McKinnon can tell you, you can be carbon dated and that piece was carbon dated to be 28,000 years old. And they've got further evidence since then that this has had human occupation for 40, what did I say, 45,000 years old, the archaeologists will tell you that's about as old as we know uh, in the world where we've got evidence. So the, the, the um, information from the artworks, if you like, is driving a whole range of scientific uh, processes. Uh, I hasten to use the word evolutionary, but, but there are certainly issues in there about migration and all the rest of it which are, are really very, very important indeed. I could list are lots and lots of cases. Here are a few that you can all find on the web just as quickly as I did. This is from Science Blogs, which is a thing on the web, which just points out that some of the uh, artistic creations that have driven scientific or engineering, in some cases, outcomes and benefits. Uh, mobile phones, and, and uh, again for the IT experts in the room, encryption mobile phones are certainly early on and still to this day in large part use a process called frequency hopping, which was actually invented by a musician and pianist uh, named 
George Antile, who lived, an American, uh, who lived for 60 years, you can see, in the early part of the 20th century. So as a musician, he developed this technique for his own work and his own, he was a, an experimental musician, shall we say, a composer, I beg your pardon, uh, and therefore he invented this technique for himself and it's been used widely in devices ever since. It's, it's argued, and this is one that I think probably would argue uh, for days and weeks, if not uh, longer. Uh, but uh, a gentleman, uh, Joseph Jacquard, who lived again, as you can see, just slightly either side of the year 1800, developed what was regarded as the first programmable device, uh, which was used to control looms, which he needed to make tapestry. And tapestry is new, no, it's not even as complicated, it's more complicated than tartan, for example, and certainly more complicated than my trousers, where you've got very ornate works on them, and this is a loom to make tapestry, not hand-woven. And it's argued that the basic concept was picked up by IBM in the early days of computer development. Uh, Alexis Carroll, this is a, an interesting one, awarded the 1912 Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine for his work in advancing surgery, vascular surgery, and suturing. And back then, it's a little gruesome, but if you got stitch up, you were just as likely to die as if they didn't do anything, because they usually caused internal bleeding. He developed techniques that are still the mainstay, pardon me, of suturing today, and his triangulization he learnt when he took sewing lessons as a young lad uh, from an embroideress learning embroidery and lace the techniques of lace making. Well, I don't know if you think I'm stretching the bow, but there are crossover techniques that make great differences across disciplines. Data from uh, uh, NASA and other satellites use artistic techniques, uh, if you like, to increase contrast. The, the imagery from those satellites, of course, can be very challenging, and no doubt the visualisation experts again here will say that techniques have moved on from then, but certainly, still to this day, they use these things where you have, you exaggerate light and dark to give 3D images. That's basically what it is. And those basic concepts developed by artists are being used by computer scientists. And I have got one that's Einstein playing the violin, but those two great inventors, Samuel Morse and Robert Fulton, were both painters before they became engineering inventors. Well, we could uh, spend a long time listing examples like that, uh, and you probably have your own favourites, and you could find many more than I probably uh, have found already. Uh, what does that mean? I'm back to an example of a collaboration, and one that some here would certainly know about, and certainly Professor Harch and her team would know about. It does sound a little IT for the subject that we have today, but it's not entirely. The MIT Media Lab, and this is off their website, I keep saying I'm not trying to invent things, this is what they say, but they really do. They bring together technology, multimedia, science, art and design. Very important point to be made here is that the building in which they live, as beautiful as yours is, their building is huge and it houses the School of Architecture, the School of Creative Arts and MIT's Public Art Gallery, uh, the, down the bottom here, the List Visual Arts Centre, that's that, which is a public art gallery and itself really very substantial in size. And they've immersed this media lab in that creative arts environment to see what happens to see what kind of examples come out of it. And um, again, as I say, you see a lot of the outcomes for such a creative arts environment. It's very IT looking, I do accept. But there's an awful lot of science emerging from this group, driven by a lot of the concepts that they see around them. 
Some of them uh, are very, uh, it doesn't really matter about too much about the language used there, but you all know about Spotify and Twitter, of course. And a lot of the stuff they develop now drive those engines in those kinds of ways. A real synergy uh, in practice today. And uh, we've mentioned UCLA, Harvard, and MIT. Uh, you don't get much better than that. Well, um, took my watch off so I could monitor the time. Now I've left, lost it. Oh, here we are. They're going fine. I'm going to draw to a close fairly soon uh, because I think uh, there's a limit to how many nice pictures of artworks you would want to see on a Friday afternoon. But I really want to ask, I think, the important questions. And this talk was only ever uh, really to spark ideas to a little bit of food for thought to really ask how we might harness a benefit from an art science nexus. And these, to me, are the significant things. We've seen, and as I've said before, there are many, many examples of art supporting science and vice versa. But how do we actually turn that into something long-term and meaningful, I think, is probably the big question. And, sorry. Uh, one of the things that we said right from the beginning that artists and scientists conceptualise and reconceptualise things very differently. And if we picked a couple of very famous examples from scientific history, uh, the, the uh, uh, protein uh, chemists, the molecular biologists, again, Professor Andrews, would know uh, very well that Crick and Watson, who won the Nobel Prize for the work in visualising, constructing the double helix of DNA, I think it's fair to say that most of the protein chemistry, the stuff about nucleic acids, had been known about for a very long time before that. Yes, they did their own work in that field too. But the real issue was the breakthrough was visualising how it went together. What if, what if they'd been in the MIT media lab, surrounded by artists, and somebody said, here's the science, how do you think this might work? Perhaps that's a bit too far. But it's a worthy question to ask. Could someone else have come up and interpreted DNA as well as quickly? I don't know. What if engineering programs said, we've designed this, you tell me, you visualise how this might fail, such as the horrendous uh, space shuttle disaster, which failed because one tiny O-ring, a plastic rubber thing that round, broke and killed all those astronauts. Are there ways that we can actually systemically get people together to actually create benefits. Um, I've asked this question. Is it even feasible? Not in a large scale. I mean, we don't want to disassemble all the visual arts departments and the maths departments, etc. I don't think we'd go that far. But is it feasible to even consider constructing an arts sciences collaboration as a discipline in its own right, with its own techniques, trends, uh, modes of operation, etc., with these kind of aims up here? that disruption and reconceptualization can assist each other. Well, part of the reason for this talk this afternoon is you'd all be aware of many of the cross-fertilizations in sciences that are already now uh, very, very valuable uh, disciplines in their own right. By choosing creative arts and physics, if you like, we're deliberately trying to ask the question across a very wide gulf, some would say. And again, I, I would say that nanotechnology for the young people here, anyone under 40, nanotechnology is a thing that's been around for a long time. Well, actually, 20 years ago, it wasn't. It was a bit of chemistry and a bit of engineering. Uh, 
molecular biosciences. Peter, you can tell us when did that really start? Before that, my understanding is that there were the uh, various uh, branches of biosciences, putting them together with computer scientists, etc., made a huge benefit. Quantum computing. These are things that we accept now as disciplines and subjects and topics to be pursued, but they are reconnections of other areas that once were really quite disparate. We've got art history, we've got the history of science and technology, and a department in Cambridge of this one. Is it too far to ask about an art-science interconnection and intersection that is itself almost a discipline? Let me say a little bit about funding, and uh, not too much, and this is not intended to be exhaustive or critical, I should hasten to add. But in a sense, I go back to my opening question. If we know what we all think is really important collectively, we all think our own area is most important, that's human nature, I'm sure. But if we all agreed on that, then would we have the same funding breakdown or breakup or distribution, I suppose is the right word, that we currently have? Uh, Professor Aidan Byrne, UQ Provost and Academy Fellow, is giving a talk on research funding models for the Academy early in the year. And I hope you come along and listen to his, uh, if you like, vision for how this works around the world and what the processes are. But I thought I might just say, and I'm not here just to sing to the, the artists who all know they don't get any money, but it's worth looking at in this year of the 453 million uh, is starting in 2017 of the Discovery Laureate, the main ARC stuff, uh, 22 million was in the humanities and creative arts. Uh, that's 10%, sorry, and that includes humanities and creative arts, of course. That's 10% of the Discovery budget and just 5% of the total grant allocation, which is pretty small. There were no linkage and no centres of excellence uh, for the arts. There was one in humanities and creative arts, essentially around archaeology. It, it has a lot to do, it does have a lot to do with indigenous cultures, but if you look at the staff, they're essentially all scientists. Uh, there's one laureate out of 17 in arts, and there are a couple of laureates in the humanities. NHMRC, 800 million a year, and there's not an artist in sight, and the Arts Council has a much smaller budget. The real issue for me is not to say one group is being treated badly or poorly compared with the other. That process has come out of this collective prioritisation. But what it does say to me is I'm not sure we've got it right yet, and a lot of this, a lot of this, and those of us who sat on ARC panels will tell you this is a historical trend as much as anything else, and it may be the right one, but it's a historical trend. The real issue for me and the subject of today's discussion is what about interdisciplinary research? Yes, I know it's allowed under ARC. I've watched many fine proposals fall between the cracks because nobody really knows how to assess interdisciplinary research appropriately until it becomes a discipline in its own right, like quantum computing, nanotechnology, or one of those other, when you have a whole body of scholars who can assess the entirety of the ideas. But if you were to put up uh, creative artists and molecular biologists today, you'd struggle. Is the, is the cruel reality, even though the rules don't say that. Is that right, or do we need to do something about it? I, I just repeat these are almost summary points in my view. Uh, the funding to the arts is very low compared with other disciplines, even if you adjust for the cost of research. Again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's historical as much as anything else. We, and this is a little bit, uh, if you like, uh, maybe I'm alone in this one. 
We do fund some pure disciplines in Australia, such as geosciences, in my opinion, my opinion only, way out of proportion with their obvious commercial and social benefit. I'm not saying the research is not good or it shouldn't be done, but when you're asking about relativities, uh, the amount of money we spend on studying the Earth's crust is uh, incredible. Others are well under, you might argue, their demonstrable social and commercial benefit. And as I already said, it's not a funding, uh, an argument for more funding per se, but an approach which really looks to get the balance right. And for me, uh, this last part here is really critical. If you go back to the MIT Media Lab, or you go to the UCLA group, or you go to Harvard, or in fact, creative industries here at QUT, those things exist because an organization has built a structure of its own will, and in some way is funding that structure, and the outcomes, therefore, you can decide, they can decide themselves what outcomes they're looking for. But if you're seeking public funding, I don't believe, uh, I won't say too often, I still don't believe uh, we've got the model quite right. We are talking today about the most extreme interdisciplinary field that we can think of, and as I've said before, there's a very wide gap through which uh, many quality ideas could fall. One final slide, and I think we're pretty well on time. Well, what are my summary points? The challenge for an art-science nexus. I do want to stress that you don't stretch the bow too far. I'm not suggesting the discipline's only value is in the way they help somebody else. We all have intrinsic value in our own subject areas, and they should continue. That's not the issue. But there is plenty of evidence that very good things can happen from an intersection, reinterpretation, and cross-fertilization. And probably this reinterpretation word is as good as any. I'm asking, is an art science cross-discipline too big a leap? Is it just a woolly idea that wouldn't build anything? Or should we look at MIT, Harvard, and UCLA and ask, how do we do that on a broader scale? There's certainly a growing body of scholars. The 8,000 people on LinkedIn, well, I know that's a bit of a cheat because everybody gets on LinkedIn, but nonetheless, that's a lot of people collaborating across the airways in this space. The grand challenge, and I am not trying to answer it because I think it requires a broader dialogue, an acceptance first of the value, then a broader dialogue. But for me, the grand challenge in this space is to develop a systemic process that mines the value of a nexus, unlocks the future, advances in arts and sciences, for the benefits of society in an ongoing, systemic way, not according to that list of things that I gave you, which, if you like, could be seen as a little ad hoc, but does so in a long-term, systemic manner. And thank you, and I'll give a plug also to the Science in Focus. Wait till you see the brilliant visualisation work that people here at this university have been doing. It's quite fantastic. But thank you very much for your attendance this afternoon. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.